previous years, there's been one that's dedicated to that. But I hope that as he talks, as well as you could go back through the notes, you're going to see that we've been weaving concepts, introducing um, various sacraments, and kind of putting together things more holistically, seeing how it plays out in salvation history, that even from the beginning of time, God was using things, physical signs, remedies, to bring people and mediate his uh, grace to them. Um, although in like figures and types, but then when Jesus comes, he establishes the sacraments. He um, puts these in order so that man might receive grace in a way fitting for man to know. Um, and so Chad's going to come in and talk about that. And then after that, we have a guest teacher, Mary Lally, here um, to share with us about the sacrament of matrimony, talk about marriage and then God's plan uh for marriage and sexuality. Um, so talk about that sacrament. So uh, let's open up here in prayer. <clears throat> Father, Son, and Holy Father, most holy, we thank you for this time of bringing us together. Send out your Holy Spirit upon us to open our hearts and minds to your word, to your truth, and consecrate us in it that in coming to know you more deeply, we might encounter the truth you sent into the world, your son Jesus, and in finding him, come to know what it means to be our very selves, come to be your image in the world. We ask this through Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen. Yeah, I'm going to try to be very, very brief. 10, 15 minutes tops. Mary and I are good friends. I work with her husband, who's my colleague at the Emmaus Institute. He makes the place happen. He's our operations manager. We're in the same small group. I really want you to get um, to hear as much of her as possible. The picture that we were chatting about, for those of you who are here beforehand, it's just an anecdote. <clears throat> One of those examples that Blake had talked about of a thing being the means by which a physical thing being the means by which some some spiritual reality gets from God in heaven to us here in the world. The ark, where inside of which, it's a, just a big box, really, if you read about the measurements of it, uh, salvation is happening for Noah and the other people, his family with him on the ark and the animals he's taken with him. But deliverance through water, hence the caption, is... Uh, means more than just being saved physically, right, from drowning. But God is doing something special in terms of salvation. And we learn about this in 1 Peter. So that story happens in Genesis uh, 5, 6, 7, 8. In Peter, 1 Peter, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it for you. Christ also suffered once for sins, Peter is telling his, his people to whom he's writing, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There's that melding of flesh and spirit. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly didn't obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Here's the punchline. Baptism, which corresponds to this, namely the flood and the ark and the whole story, in Genesis, now corresponds to this. Now, sorry, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. That's the punchline. It saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. That is the wiping clean of the stain of the soul, right? The making right the record, the, the, the leveling of the ledger. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, powers having been subjected to him. So a, a physical thing, baptism, <clears throat> water, being wet, <laughs> results in a, a new spiritual reality. And that's what God does. God takes the physical things that he has made, and he makes them, here's a great $64 word, ready? <laughs> Efficacious, capable able to do something very special that's beyond the physical, that's spiritual in its nature. 
physical is the way to the spiritual. That's really the essence of grace and the sacraments. So on your handout, you just got a page. Uh, a, a quick review. I'm going to blitz right down through this, okay? So hang on tight. <laughs> Throttles down. 0 0.1. Everything's a zero because Mary's the real show tonight, and she'll start with her own one or whatever. I don't know how you're going to do it, but I'm sure it'll be great. What is grace? Let's get a definition of grace. From the catechism, grace is favor, free and undeserved help that God gives us to respond to his call to become children of God. Down to 1997. Grace is a participation in the life of God. It introduces us into the intimacy of Trinitarian life, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We, as humans, get to be part of that life somehow through grace. By baptism, specifically, hence the, the arc anecdote, the Christian participates in the grace of Christ, the head of his body. As an adopted son or daughter, a Christian can henceforth call God Father. Jesus teaches us to call God Father in union with Jesus. He receives or she receives the life of the Spirit who breathes charity into him and who forms the church. I just want to camp out on those two words, breathes charity. Charity being self-giving love for another, right? Willingness to sacrifice our own conveniences for the sake of another. If you've ever experienced that, your impulse toward kindness uh, at our own expense even. That's what becomes the norm for us. Before our baptisms, it was maybe the exception. Maybe we were able to be nice. After our baptisms, when the slate's been wiped clean and we have infused in us God's grace, God's life, it becomes the norm to, uh, to be kind, say, in traffic <laughs> or wherever else you might be inclined not to be kind. Um, so that's, a, yeah, that's just a before and after. Down to the last, 1998 there. This vocation to eternal life, it's supernatural. It's not something we can do for ourselves. It, it depends entirely on God's gratuitous, that means abundant and undeserved. We don't deserve it. His gratuitous initiative. He starts the process. For he alone can reveal and give himself. And it surpasses the power of our own intellect or will. We can't just decide to do it. We have to be given by God the grace to do it. Let's talk about categories of grace. They, there are two main categories you'll hear Catholics talk about a lot. First is sanctifying grace, which is grace that heals our soul and restores us to God and his divine life in us. So while grace technically isn't stuff, it's not a thing, it's not a physical object, for example. It is quantifiable in the sense that you can have less of it or more of it, and, um, and we benefit from having more. So it's measurable in some sense. The grace of Christ, sanctifying grace, is the, the gratuitous gift that God makes to us of his own life, infused by the Holy Spirit into our soul, to heal it of sin, and to sanctify it. If you don't know what sanctify means, that's okay. It comes from hagias in Greek, which means simply to make holy. And the Latin translation of hagias is sanctus, holy, to make holy. And we say that in the Mass sometimes when we're doing the Mass in Latin. So if you're ever at Mass and we're doing Latin, you'll hear that word, sanctus, sanctus, sanctus sabaoth, whatever it is. No, actually, it's not in that order. Anyway, I won't try to remember it. But that's that word. Sanctify, sanctify, to make us holy. That's what we receive in our baptism. It is, it is in us the source of the work of, there's that word, sanctification, which just means the making holy. God's making us holy, like himself. Uh, the 2000, I think this might be on your second page or on the back of it. I'm not sure how it split for you. Maybe it's on the front still. Sanctifying grace is an habitual gift a stable and supernatural disposition. It, it inclines us, you know, it, it directs, it aims us toward being nice in traffic, <laughs> to, to go back to that illustration. It's, it's a supernatural disposition that perfects the soul itself to enable it to live with God, to act by his love 
habitual grace, the permanent disposition to live and act in keeping with God's call is distinguished from actual grace. So what do we mean by actual grace? That's the second category. So sanctifying grace is that grace that we receive through the sacraments that makes us holy. Participation or participant, uh, participants with God in his life. What's actual grace? It's not actual grace as opposed to fake grace, which you might, you know, when, when we use the word actual as opposed to just perceived or contrived or fake, right? No, it comes from the word act. Actual grace endows us with the capacity to act. So grace for action, you could say. You know, write that down in your margin somewhere. Actual grace is grace for action. The fuel for the car. You're, you being the car. Actual grace is referred to God's interventions. This is in your notes here whether at the beginning of conversion or in the course of the work of sanctification. So some of you are on the journey into the church. Some of you will receive baptism, confirmation, if you've already been baptized. You'll receive communion for the first time. That's all sanctifying grace, those sacraments. But what made it possible for you to come to class tonight or to block out these Thursday nights in your life generally? What inclined you to come to class at all in the first place, to sign up. Those are actual graces. God paving the way for you, making a way for you to, to, to walk this path. That's the actual grace, to act in accordance with your journey toward sanctifying grace, this journey that leads to the healing of your soul and the replenishing and, and strengthening of it. So like this morning on the way to school, my daughter and I prayed for a test that she'd be taking later in the day. And then after school, she's at the running club. So we prayed that she'd have a good run and the other athletes would be safe and fun. And we asked for God's grace and strength, not just his strength, but his grace to move through these parts of our lives well in a way that honors him, that builds his kingdom, that brings glory to him, that benefits others even at our own expense, because that's what love is, right? Um, that, that Poppy is her name, would do well, that she would be graced with actual grace to do that well. That's actual grace. But the ultimate end or direction of actual grace is towards sanctifying grace. I mean, the whole idea is to keep going toward those sources of sanctifying grace, to keep building ourselves, our souls, to make them good participants in the life of the Trinity. Okay, we have seven sacraments. So we've talked a lot about actual grace getting us to sanctifying grace. Seven sacraments. And each sacrament comprises two main components. You've got the stuff, the matter, the what. And you've got the form, the how, or the way, or the method. And I, I just have the, the what, the, the, for, the matter, in front of you there. You've got baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. Reconciliation, sometimes called sacrament of confession or even penance, goes by a couple different names. Matrimony, which is what Mary's going to talk about in just a couple of minutes. Holy orders and the anointing of the sick. Water uh, would be the form of baptism, or sorry, the, uh, the matter of baptism. And the words, I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that'd be the form, the structure of it. Words actually are the form of most of these. But I want to draw your attention to the asterisk. In 0.4, I explain what that is. So baptism, confirmation, matrimony, and holy orders have an asterisk. What, what's going on there? That indicates the fontal character of the sacrament. That's not a word we use every day. Fontal, just it's an adjective from the word fount or font, sometimes people say. You know, a, a source of water, like a spring of water that just keeps on delivering water, never stops. So some graces are received continuously through repetition. We go again and again to confession, to reconciliation, because we keep messing up and we need it. We keep going again and again to the Eucharist because God wants to keep giving us himself in an ongoing way, routinely, regularly. But other sacraments are received only once. And yet, and I think this is italicized in your notes, yet continuously because of their fontal nature, like a spring that just keeps delivering. Baptism is one of these, letter B in your notes. It's a constant cause 
along with marriage and holy orders and confirmation, we could say. I'm not sure why I didn't include that one. Each and every moment, these fontal sacraments provide the source of our growth on the one hand, so we can trace our growth back to them in some sense. But they also provide kind of the benchmark if we start to fall away or slip. Um, we can recall our baptism and say, you know, I'm not doing well right now. And that's in relation to my relationship with God as a baptized person. I, he's claimed me. I forever stand in relation to that moment. And I need to get back to that somehow and keep moving forward till confession. So it's a benchmark in that way. So we don't just look back on our baptisms as a happy memory. Uh, when you go into the sanctuary, and you have, or, or maybe right before, depending on how the church is set up, and you have these holy water fonts, there's opportunity for you to dip your fingers, make the sign of the cross, to remind yourself of your baptism in that moment. Even for, for those of us who are baptized as infant, infants, I'm not sure what it's reminding us of, because we don't have that memory, right? It's the story that was the story before we recall the story. But we're tapping back into that and saying, I'm a baptized individual, and I need to go forward in the light of the fact that I'm baptized. I've got a new identity. Um, what do I write here? We don't just look back on our baptisms as a happy memory. That's not what the holy water fonts, there's that word again, are doing there. Baptism is not merely what happened to me when I was a baby or a long time ago. It's a present reality. I am living in light of this spring that keeps flowing in me from God. The current character and the condition of my soul is a direct and immediate result of my once upon a long time ago baptism, or maybe recently for some of you, but regardless of when it was. I have in your notes, the story that was is the story that is, but I wish I would have written it the other way around. The story that is right now, your story right here, you're sitting here. Those of you who have been baptized and who are pursuing the Catholic Church, the reason you're sitting here is because you were baptized, even if you were baptized outside the Catholic Church. That baptism is God's way of tapping into your life and saying, even if you've been dormant, not pursuing God all these years, it's time now. I've got a wonderful plan for you. I have called you by name to borrow from the chosen. I think it's the first episode, right? You called me by name. I, I am reaching out to you because you were baptized and I'm, I'm now moving you toward myself. And here you are. So the right way to tell the story, our own story, for those of us who were baptized and who find ourselves here now, is that God is capitalizing or seizing on that baptismal moment and he is bringing us now closer toward himself to receive sanctifying grace, build us up from in his love. He just loves us. He wants to be close to us. So that's the first example, actually, of, uh, of I have... In my notes, 0.5, two examples of fontal grace being delivered in daily life. And that's the first one is the baptism that sits now. And the other one, this sets up Mary, I hope, really nicely, and I'm already over time. Those of you who are married, do you ever experience occasional growth spurts? Maturation, like I just, you know, I'm, I'm able to say no to myself, yes to my spouse, to my kids. Suddenly, maybe inexplicably, I don't know how this worked, but I was able to rise above it uh, when I was stressed. And I, how do you tell the story of that? What's the right way to tell the story? Well, God is using the institution of marriage in order to call us closer to himself and, again, to build us up. So marriage is sacramental in its uh, rightful state. Um, yeah, so that's a, that's a quick crash course, a primer on grace, sanctifying grace, actual grace. Uh, how do sacraments work? They're spirit, well, they're physical activities by way of which God gets what he achieved on the cross. That was another thing I meant to say, but would 
iron, nails, physical body, right, on the cross, suffering, achieves what? A new spiritual reality in the world. God has always been in the business of using the physical things of creation to achieve new spiritual realities between heaven and earth. Baptism, marriage, and all the other sacraments are his means of doing that. So, without further ado, let me cede the floor, my friend. Okay, so, fantastic. Thank you. Thanks so much for the introduction, Chad. The, that will relate really nicely. So, appreciate it on more than one level. Stand back. I don't want to be turning my back to anyone. Um, so, I'm Mary Lally. Um, going to talk about God's plan for marriage and sexuality today. So, I'm married almost 15 years in September. Um, my husband, Thomas, and I have five children who are, so two daughters who are bookends with three boys in the middle. Our oldest is 11. Our youngest is a year. She was at the talk last year at like not quite a month old strapped to me, but now she would be squirmier and heavier. So she's at home with daddy and grandpa and they're probably all like having fun and being late for bed and that's okay. I said, no, don't worry about that time, whatever, it's fine. Um, but yeah, so we're parishioners here at St. Peter's and feel very blessed and love it and yeah, all that good stuff. So um, today's talk, God, God's plan for marriage and sexuality, I want to break down into three main parts. So a little bit first on the sacrament of marriage in some more detail, but using that framework that Chad discussed as, as just that, a framework. And then the middle part, I'll go a little bit into, there's a class that um, Chad's father, actually, who's the president of the Emmaus Institute, which is the Catholic Bible Study Institute here in Lincoln, um, gave a class a year ago, well, a year and a few months, and then again, nine months or so after that, um, called Heaven Help the Home, God's Blueprint, for marriage and family. And my husband and I took that and that was amazing and life-changing, honestly. And so some of the information from that, I'll just very briefly summarize, but that's something that um, hopefully should be, could continue to be available through Emmaus if it's something that you are drawn to and want to learn more about. Um, and then the last part is talking a bit about a summarization of the writings of St. Pope John Paul II in Theology of the Body, where he expresses a lot about what our bodies are as a gift from God and how we utilize them in all different areas. But he, in part of that, spoke specifically about what that means for our sexuality and answered a lot of questions that were um, either difficult to understand or a bit difficult to digest, especially from some of the writings from previous Pope Paul VI, um, who did, is, did, did wonderful work on, on that. But John Paul II you know, breaks it down even further and, and makes it something that's more easy for, for us to understand. So um, specifically then when the sacrament of marriage. Um, so just to review, this is basically going through that last row in the chart uh, that says Joshua Burke's on the top on the sacraments. So reiterating essentially that row. So the marriage being related, so this nat natural analogy there, is related to our natural desire for coupling, sexual drive, and reproduction of species. So God obviously designed us to operate this way and provided marriage as a framework for this design. Um, I have listed some places in scripture that Josh also lists where we see um, marriages talked about, characters in the Bible being married or speaking about marriage. The form of marriage is the consent or the vows the matter, so that previous handout from Chad talked about the matter um, being, here we have Josh is talking about the contract and that's kind of mixed as well with the reality of the, actually the, the man and woman are the people who administer. So it's kind of a little bit confusing because you see minister and we tend to think of minister as like the priest, but this means like the person who are, the people who are administering the sacraments to essentially giving that contract to one another, um, which results in this indissoluble bond. And the fact that it's indissoluble is something that both the catechism teaches and Jesus himself speaks about. And we'll get into that a bit later. The specific graces of marriage are for 
perfection of the marriage from the permanent or that fontal, always overflowing bond. So that is representative and similar to, yet not exactly the same, but analogous to the relationship of Christ and his church. So sometimes you might hear people talking about the church as the bride and Christ as the groom, and this is where we, we get that from. Um, and we receive the grace through the sacrament of marriage to live our married life well. Um, the word eschatology means how it relates to the last thing. So in the book of Revelation, we hear about the wedding feast of the Lamb. So it relates to all of all of time and eternity. So a bit of history on, I'm afraid I'm going to like zip ahead. Ah. There we go. Need to get my fingernail bigger. Um, of Christian marriage. So marriage isn't something that we've just invented now in modern day post New Testament. It's not something from the New Testament. It has Old Testament roots. We've all read stories about um, Old Testament figures who had wives and husbands. Um, even the prophets describe God's covenant with Israel as a marriage. And so we'll come up, speak more about covenant in a bit, but that word covenant comes up um, over and over again. And one time when my daughter was younger, I remember my husband and I trying to teach her like, what's a covenant? And it's like, well, how do we describe this? You're, you know, like in kindergarten or something a promise but better so <laughs> that's not a technical definition we'll get into the technical definition but it's like a promise but better um so also marriage revealed the nature of god's covenant so this is historically in the old testament with israel and the covenant revealed a deeper meaning in marriage so that there's a back and forth relationship in the new testament there are places also where marriage is referred to it reflects the love of god and then once we know about the person of Jesus as incarnate, um, we can see how marriage reflects the love of Jesus for his church. So again, that's that, that bride of Christ analogy. St. Paul in the New Testament calls marriage a mystery, which is we're starting to get closer to that word sacramentum and eventually sacrament. So St. Augustine in the 4th and 5th centuries um, talked about sacramentum having two senses. So the sacred sign, which again goes into a bit of what Chad was talking about, and then also this indissoluble bond. Um, this is just going through a bit of history of what it meant to be married or what marriage was. So in the 9th and 11th centuries, marriage actually began to be celebrated as part of the church liturgy or as part of a mass. And then in the 11th and 12th centuries is when the seven sacraments were identified in marriage became officially one of the seven sacraments. The Council of Trent is what strictly defined marriage as the sacrament, however. So it, it developed um, this tradition of being a sacrament before it actually had that definition given at the Council of Trent. And in the Code of Canon Law, uh, 1983 enforced the idea of marriage as a covenant between spouses that reflects the covenant between God and humanity. Um, so the Catechism teaches us about marriage so the definition specifically is a covenant or partnership of life between a man and woman, which is ordered to the well-being of the spouses and to the procreation, that should not say procreation, and upbringing of children. When validly contracted between two baptized people, marriage is a sacrament. So it talks about being both a covenant and a sacrament. And also, then the next point is marriage is a vocation. So that was something that came up. A little bit in this uh, introduction from Chad. I don't know if you have gotten into vocation much. Um, we'll get into that a little bit in a few slides. So marriage is directed toward the salvation of others. It confers a particular mission in the church and serves to build up the people of God. So marriage is not just a law that I'm partnered with this other person. It's infused with grace. It's a vehicle for God's grace as a sacrament. It's a covenant, so it's this person-to-person -person partnership, and then also this vocation, so it's directed toward mission and service. So marriage is a covenant. So what is a covenant? The more official definition than a promise, but better, is a solemn agreement between human beings or between God and a human being involving mutual commitments or guarantees. So we think of that picture that Chad had up of 
um, Noah's Ark, there was a covenant when we think of the rainbow, and that was a covenant between God and Noah. Um, the marriage covenant is between the two people, the husband and wife. So the Bible refers to God's covenants with Noah, Abraham, and Moses as leader of the chosen people, Israel. In the Old Testament, or covenant, so the word testament itself can be, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Chad, but it's essentially interchanged with covenant. Um, God revealed his law through Moses and prepared his people for salvation through the prophets. In the New Testament or covenant, Christ established a new and eternal covenant through his own sacrificial death and resurrection. The Christian economy is the new and definitive covenant, which will never pass away. And no new public revelation is to be expected before the glorious manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's getting a little bit into what we're um, required essentially to believe as Catholics as part of what's called public revelation, which is the Old and New Testament, and how covenant fits into that. So again, marriage is covenant. A covenant is intensely personal. So we're not just talking about a contract like you might you know, sign in a law office. A bond of love between parties. Like a contract, it also involves certain rights and responsibilities, but it goes far beyond a contract, since it includes a personal commitment of both parties to the welfare of the other. While a contract is clearly limited in scope, a covenant establishes a relationship that cannot be so easily defined. So all those Old Testament covenants all involved relationship. Obviously, we're in relationship with our spouses. We're not just signing contracts and then never attempting to grow close to one another or learn or serve about one another. Um, the covenant relationship is open-ended. It is the relationship itself which is central. And the growth and development of the relationship may make demands that were not even imagined at the beginning. This is much more personal, a much more personal image. Covenant theology also helps us remember that Christian marriage is a matter of concern for the whole church community, which is bound together in covenant. So a Christian marriage, obviously we have a private relationship with our spouse, yet part of that vocation and mission is to go out and serve and that has a relationship with our, our parish family around us and our community, which is a lot of times why marriages are in part of a mass and even historically would be part of like a Sunday mass. Like we sometimes will see with baptisms. I know not as, as often here, but it has happened here where, you know, there's a baby getting baptized at the mass. It, it would often historically be like that, like, oh, 32nd Sunday of ordinary time and Thomas and Mary are getting married today. So that's, again, just more supporting that um, that vocation and missional nature of the, the covenant of marriage. So marriage as a vocation. So the definition of vocation that the catechism gives in its glossary is a calling or destiny we have in this life and hereafter. God has created the human person to love and serve him. The fulfillment of this vocation is eternal happiness. Christ calls the faithful to the perfection of holiness, which as we learned, we can't do without grace, right? That's that sanctifying grace. The vocation of the laity consists in seeking the kingdom of God by engaging in temporal affairs and directing them according to God's will. Priestly and religious vocations are dedicated to the service of the church as the universal sacrament of salvation. All right, so um, a bit of teaching from the church on conjugal love, fidelity, and fertility, which we'll get into a little bit more when we talk about the theology of the body as well. So the catechism also within marriage teaches about the requirements of conjugal love. And in paragraph 1643, it states, conjugal love involves a totality in which all the elements of the person enter. It aims at a deeply personal unity, a unity that beyond union in one flesh leads to forming one heart and soul. It demands indissolubility and faithfulness in definitive mutual giving and is open to fertility. So a lot of that sounds a lot like the way Christ loves his church, right? It's reflecting that, um, that picture that we have of, of marriage in that regard. Um, so the catechism goes on to state that marriage is indissoluble and exists as unity. Unity is deepened by lives of common faith and by receiving the Eucharist together. Husband and wife have equal personal dignity. Conjugal love is to be undivided and exclusive. So again, that unity is, is a key part of marriage. 
and the common faith in receiving the Eucharist are, are ways we receive the actual and sanctifying grace. Conjugal love requires fidelity of spouses, and this reflects the fidelity of Christ through his church. Um, more teaching on conjugal love, fidelity, and fertility from the catechism. So the catechism teaches that physical separation is permissible, but husbands and wives do not cease to be married. And obviously there are a lot of specifics to personal situations you know, regarding that. So that's where a lot of times it does take assistance of your pastor or um, other parish bodies. I know there are a lot of um, diocesan level assistance with that as far as some of the priests who specialize in canon law. Um, specifically on divorce, the catechism says that new unions cannot be recognized as valid if the first marriage was. And the catechism also goes on to state regarding fertility. By its very nature, the institution of marriage and married love is ordered to the procreation and education of the offspring. And it is in them that it finds its crowning glory. The fruitfulness of conjugal love extends to the fruits of the moral, spiritual, and supernatural life that parents hand on to their children by education. Parents are the principal and first educators of their children. In this sense, the fundamental task of marriage and family is to be at the service of life. So, and we'll get into this a little bit more with God's plan for marriage uh, regarding that class that my husband and I took, but um, sometimes people have the misconception that the fruitfulness of marriage is just go forth and make babies is what be fruitful and multiply means. Yet it's not just, we're not to be procreation machines, right? We're to, um, in that the fruitfulness comes from teaching and growing our, our children, or our offspring in that image and likeness of God and, and propagating the faith, propagating the idea to serve, the idea to have this charity that is that selfless love. Um, spouses to whom God has not granted children can nevertheless have a conjugal life full of meaning in both human and Christian terms. Their marriage can radiate fruitfulness of charity, of hospitality, and of sacrifice. So since every marriage is called to that, fruitfulness of charity, hospitality, and sacrifice, most traditionally it tends to happen by a natural law in terms of biological children, but that doesn't mean that it, it stops if there isn't ability to have biological children, if someone's at an age where that doesn't happen, if they're of a whatever economic, financial means. There are many, uh, many ways in general where all marriages are called to this radiating fruitfulness. Um, so into God's plan for marriage. And I want to make sure we have time to go through some questions in general. A lot of time to generate some. So this is from that class um, that I was referring to. So in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we learn the true meaning and purpose of marriage and family. So God teaches this to um, Adam and Eve and teaches it to us. So everything that exists is from God, the creator. Therefore, we can expect marriage and family to function best when we consult and abide by the divine author and architect's design. So it's good for us to go back to first things first to the beginning and remember that marriage is something that God gave to us right when he gave us all of creation, he gave us marriage. And since he's the one who designed it, it works best when we use it by his design, right? I mean, if you bought an espresso machine and used it not to the instructions, it would probably make a mess and not work. And so that's what happens when we try to use things that God gave us, not the way they're intended to be used. So the creator reveals himself as a God of separations and distinctions. So he makes light from darkness, male and female are separate and distinct and defines an ordered world. So things are not just this blob of confusion, right? It's, this is, this is the, this plant, this is this woman, this is the light, this is the land, this is the sea. We can expect that humans will live in God's structured universe to their own blessing and flourishing, or they will reject it to their own peril with implications for the creation established roles of husbands and wives. So again, that's using what God has given us as, as is intended. God enables humans to participate in the creative process. So he created in Genesis and invites us to create. The human procreative potential for marriage and family as built into the creator's plan will not be fulfilled simply in populating the earth with more humans, 
but with image bearers who will fill the earth with those who live in sync with the creator and his purposes. So that's getting into what I had said earlier. We're not just making lots of humans. We're attempting to fulfill God's plan for marriage by having children and then nurturing them into humans who reflect God and follow him and share his message with, with the world. In us, the triune God intends to become visible on earth. This has certain implications for marriage and family. The highest goal and profoundest privilege of which is to put God on display. So we are, it's a mystery how we're made in God's image. One of the ways that we are made in God's image is being able to create as God can create. And we create as the Trinity does. So a lot, one of the ways that the Trinity is, is often described is that the love between the Father and the Son generates the Holy Spirit, who is the love between the Father and the Son. And as humans, we're enabled to do is to, to engage in a similar action by being married to a spouse and out of our love generating a third person who is who is our child. So God, one of the ways we're made in his image is being able to have this procreative ability that mirrors the Trinity itself. So in Genesis 2, Adam's, so before Genesis 2.18, God makes, think of all the creation stories you've heard for years as a child. He makes the land and he makes the everything, right? And he, after each time, after he makes something new, he calls it good, he calls it good. And the first time he says something is not good is when Adam is described as being alone. So then God subsequently creates Eve, who's the perfect match for Adam. And then God lays out his framework for marriage. So he specifically says that a man should leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, and the two of them become one body. So that one body implying the whole person unity, which is physical, spiritual, and emotional. So that's whole person there. And so in Genesis, we learn that husband and wife have different roles as part of God's order, yet equal dignity. So sometimes... Um, nowadays, because we live in a fallen world, right? Post, post Adam and Eve eating the apple, we think of dignity of a man and a woman means the same as they have to be able to do the same thing. So a lot of times, unfortunately, throughout history, there are times where women have not been respected or been allowed to do things that they are capable of doing or perhaps should be able to, to do. And so we almost get squeamish when we think that like, we have different roles, but a lot of times that's because the different roles in history have been accompanied with that lack of dignity. So in actuality, God set out a plan where, yes, there are different roles. These different roles do not take any dignity away from a woman or from a man for that matter. So this equal dignity, um, Dr. Seiner referred to as personal equality. So both man and woman are made in the image and likeness of God. Both receive God's blessing, as we see in Genesis. Both are given dominion, and they're made as two perfect counterparts. But there are these different roles, which is this, he referred to as positional economy. So that's like you have different positions and that fits in differently. Man was created first, then woman was formed from man. And the, the command not to eat fruit from the tree was given to man. And then man was responsible uniquely and the woman was responsibly dependent. So man was to protect Eve from making bad choices, and Eve was supposed to follow the good direction of Adam. Man named the animals and also named the woman. So the dignity and roles are present before sin enters the world. Sin has the effect of disrupting or interfering with the situation, of not of implementing it. Personal equality and positional differentiation would coexist in perfect harmony, as in the Godhead, were it not for sin, with the added implication that the only hope for such harmony lies in a redemption and restoration from sin. So it essentially is sin in the fall that messes this up when we think of it in, in our kind of modern squeamish sense, right? Um, and there's hope for it being restored. So the role of man perfecting God's household, championing, championing the family's pursuit of image bearing, and protecting God's household, 
preserving the family from veering off the course of image bearing. There's intrinsic authority, but authority to rule only in a manner that God has assigned. So man having authority, but still having the equal dignity. The role of woman, as is outlined in Genesis, is called to be in a dependent position in the marriage relative to her husband's perfecting and protecting roles. And woman is also the one who's privileged to bear the deliverer or to be a child bearer into the world. So motherhood is something that's specific to women. So our, on to our third part of the talk. And then since this kind of still reflects back on the, the first two thirds, um, we can pause. We can pause for questions. I think probably at the end, because this might even explain if there if there are any questions coming up um, at this point in time. So, theology of the body, as I, I mentioned, um, is a writing by Pope John Paul II. That's very extensive. I've only read like a summary of the summary, um, but I've I've heard it in that it's amazing in its totality. So I don't know. I think it's like this many volumes thick of paper. If anyone ever wants to read the whole thing, like feel free to summarize to me. I've heard it's amazing. But the overall thesis statement or overarching um, statement that JP two makes in that is this second point here: the body, in fact, and only the body, is capable of making visible what is invisible, the spiritual and divine. It has been created to transfer into the visible reality of the world, the mystery hidden from eternity and God, and thus to be a sign of it. So unfortunately, through a lot of um, various stages in church history, there have been uh, heresies and, and sort of flavors taught now and again that the body is bad and and the spirit is good and and many thoughts that that go along that line of teaching and one of the the main themes that jp2 aimed to set straight was the body itself is good god creates our good body he chose to create jesus in a body his son was made incarnate and how does our physical body relate to the image of God relate to what God calls us to, to do in our day-to-day -day lives in in sharing the, the message of the kingdom. Um, so in that writing, we learn a lot about our human sexuality as well um, from JP2. So overall, our sexuality relates to this, this gift. And again, in the past, a lot of times it's this, this um, fallacy of, okay, sexuality is bad and our bodies are bad, but the sexuality part of our bodies also reflects the love of God and this beautiful gift that he gives. And so how do we reflect him through our sexuality? So because of that, this theology of the body is this message of salvation. And let me show you how this is so good, as opposed to this message of like, you can't do this and you can't do that. So authentic Christian morality is not against us. It is unstintingly for us. Again, this is from um, the catechism reflecting on theology of the body. The first line in the catechism section on morality speaks volumes. It's not give up everything you really want and follow the miserable rules or you're going to hell. It is Christian, recognize your dignity. So John Paul II says that a lot, recognize your dignity. This is what John Paul II's theology of the body has been proclaiming all along, our dignity, our greatness as male and female. The church's teaching on contraception, written in Pope Paul V, fifth, sixth, <laughs> Roman numeral, in 1968 encyclical Humana Vitae. So that um, encyclical is what hammered out the specifics of um, what we're called to do and how we're called to act as Catholic Christians regarding the question of contraception. That was something that was not out and available in the general population before that time. So Pope Paul, that's the sixth, knew it would be difficult for the modern world to understand this teaching because for the most part, the modern world has lost sight of the greatness, dignity, and divine purpose of human life. 
we're no longer we no longer see the sexual union as a great mystery proclaim, proclaiming god's love for humanity and foreshadowing heaven so again in tob or theology of the body what is aimed to be done is reshifting our our focus that to to the angle of the body having dignity and greatness and the sexual union as a great mystery So there's the, there are these four F's that are um, referred to in theology of the body about bodily love. So bodily love is meant to express the language of Christ's love. If we're made in the image of God, if we reflect the way that Christ loves his church, then our sexual union is also meant to reflect that. So the love of Jesus Christ had these four features. It was given freely, fully, faithfully, and fruitfully. So we can see in the Gospel of John that Christ gives his body freely when he says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And then subsequently in John, Christ is, is one of the places. I mean, these are not the only places where this shows up, of course, but Christ gives his body without reservation, without condition or selfish calculation. So he loved them to the least or to the last, excuse me. And he gives his love faithfully when he states, I am with you always, and he gives it fruit fruitfully that I came that they may have life. There we go. Okay. Um, so again, regarding the four Fs, ultimately all questions of sexual morality come down to the very simple question, does this act truly image God's free, total, or full, faithful, and fruitful love, or doesn't it? Simply speaking, if it doesn't, it is a lesser love, a counterfeit that can never satisfy. When we deliberately sterilize sex, we fundamentally disorient the act. It no longer points of necessity to marriage and the raising of a family. And then as a sacrament, marriage not only signifies God's life and love, it really participates in God's life and love, or at least is meant to. For sacraments to convey grace, God's life and love, the sacramental sign must accurately signify the spiritual mystery so that sexual union being the sacramental sign in marriage truly needing to signify this spiritual mystery of god's love for the church so um again this is still uh in reference to theology of the body all of married life is a sacrament all of married life is meant to be a sign of god's love spouses signify god's love most profoundly when they become one flesh here, like no other moment in married life, spouses are called to participate in the great mystery of God's love. But this will only happen if their sexual union accurately signifies God's love. Therefore, as the Pope concludes, we can speak of moral good and evil in the sexual relationship based on whether the couple gives their union the character of a truthful sign. So that's whether or not it's following those four Fs, essentially. Insert contraception into the language of the body and knowingly or unknowingly, the couple engages in a countersign of this of the great mystery. Rather than proclaiming God is life-giving love, the language of contraceptive intercourse says God is not life-giving love. Contraceptive sex denies and attacks our creation in the image of the Trinity at its roots. Most couples who use contraception simply have no idea that this is what they are saying with their bodies, so this is not a matter of assigning culpability. It's just attempting to explain that relationship. So regarding responsible parenthood from theology of the body, so Pope Paul VI does state that large families should result from prudent reflection. So again, we're not just flat out, okay, everybody be baby makers um, and not chance. So he also states that couples must respect moral law and they must have serious reasons, financial, physical, psychological, et cetera, to avoid pregnancy. So on one hand, we're not just supposed to procreate for the sake of procreating and throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, and not raise image bearers. On the other hand, making a choice to not have another child, while it can be very reasonable, is something that requires discernment and is, is a, a big choice. And a lot of times, um, a bigger choice than perhaps we might be led to believe if we just look at it from a, a cultural type perspective. The church does not state that it is wrong to avoid children. However, the end, avoiding children, doesn't justify the means. 
So would the couple be doing anything to falsify their sexual union if they embraced during a time of natural infertility? Take, for example, a couple past childbearing years. They know their union will not result in a child. Are they violating the sign if they engage in intercourse with this knowledge? Are they contracepting? No. Contraception, by definition, is the choice to engage in an act of intercourse, but then do something else to render it sterile. Couples who use natural family planning, NFP, when they have just have a just reason to avoid pregnancy, never render their sexual acts sterile, they never contracept. So we must not take the powers of life into our own hands and make ourselves like God. So ultimately that reference to Genesis is when Adam and Eve wanted to make themselves like God by choosing to eat of the fruit and wanting that knowledge of good and evil. Pope John Paul II stated, contraception is to be judged so profoundly unlawful as never to be for any reason justified. To think or say the contrary is equal to maintaining that in human life, situations may arise in which it is lawful to not recognize God as God. It is certainly true that chastity requires asceticism, understood as a ready and determined willingness to resist the impulses of lust. But remember, authentic chastity does not repress. It enters into Christ's death and resurrection. As lust dies, authentic love is raised up. Hence, the discipline required by chastity does not impoverish or impede a couple's expressions of love and affection. Rather, it makes them spiritually more intense and thus enriches them. So that's, again, just getting at how these, these rules, which are often seen by our society as repressive, allow for the true flourishing that God intends in marriage to, to well forth and have that fontal nature, right? Oh, yeah, correct. Not, not uh, Tobit, T-O-B. It should be all caps. Good call. Yeah, thank you. So natural family planning that it made reference to this NFP um, is something that could have like multiple talks and binders on the the um, the details of how that works. But just to summarize in a very brief slide, so it involves tracking a woman's fertility and, if desired, abstaining during fertile periods and engaging in intercourse during infertile periods. There are a few different methods that exist out there. There's Creighton, Billings, Marquette. They involve monitoring different uh, physiological biomarkers. And I forgot to say at the beginning of this talk, I'm happy to answer questions about those as well as I'm a part-time physician at St. Elizabeth when I'm not home with our kids. So um, adult hospital medicine is what I practice now, but a family medicine trained. So I've certainly spoken to plenty of patients about this in the past. Um, so those are just methods that can be used. And if any of you are interested in looking up, there's this factsaboutfertility.org that is a really um, highly recommended website where you, it does require you now to, you know, submit your email and then, but it doesn't charge you anything. It's just like, and you can even unsubscribe from their letters or whatever if you don't want to clog your inbox. But it has a really nice summary of um, just like basics, doesn't get into all the details that you can read over and get a sense of, okay, this seems like this might be a means of natural family planning that works well. Um, for us as a couple versus this one doesn't seem like it would be as practical for us or what have you. So it's, it's a really useful resource. Um, so just summarizing what Theology of the Body says, so sexual union itself is meant to be an expression of life according to the Holy Spirit. When spouses are open to the gift, the Holy Spirit infuses them with everything that is noble and beautiful with this, the supreme value, which is love, which is not exactly the same as the definition of grace, yet that infusion of grace goes right along with that. Um, we don't do this on our own. Our strength to do this comes from God as grace. So we're reminded that we need to pray for our hearts to be changed and pray for the grace. And, and a constant change. That's not any kind of condemnation that anyone in here is in the wrong place, that, that we all have to continue to pray um, to fight temptation, to fight against concupiscence, to be able to be sanctified in this manner, right? So through the gift of redemption, there's always the possibility of passing from error to the truth, the possibility of conversion from sin to chastity as an expression of a life according to the Spirit. Um, so I don't really have a summary slide particularly, but I can always go back to the beginning if need be. 
or maybe I can look back and have Blake look back at me in the slides. But do you guys have any particular questions about any of those three areas or something that wasn't specifically touched? Questions about marriage, um, theology of the body? I can look back and have Blake look back at me in the slides. But do you guys have any particular questions about any of those three areas or something that wasn't specifically touched? Questions about marriage, um, theology of the body? Thank you for listening to this great content from St. Peter Catholic Church. For more content, for other talks, for more information, please visit St. Peter Catholic Church, Lincoln, Nebraska, on Apple iTunes or on Podbean, and our parish website, St. Peter Lincoln.com. God bless you.